invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. I want to read the verses 26 through 49. And while you're looking that up, let me take a moment to tell you that I am starting this morning a series of Lenten sermons with you. I did not check, but I believe there's seven in this particular series, seven sermons in this series. So obviously we're not going to get them done before Good Friday or Easter. But then I checked the rule book, I checked the uh, church order, and it didn't tell me that I couldn't preach a Lenten sermons after Lent. So we're going to continue the series of seven sermons on the last words of Christ on the cross. And this morning I want to f- begin with those words when he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But at this time, let's read Luke 23, and I want to read the uh, up to verse 49, 26 through 49. Hear the word of God. Now as they led him, the Christ, and as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughter of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that have never bore, and breasts which have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two criminals led with him to be put to death, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the, and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Thus far in our text for this morning, I take from verse 34, actually 34b, where it says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. 
Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Salem with me this morning. Part of my calling and also a great privilege in my ministry was to minister to those, to the dying, to minister to the dying and to their families. And over the years, I've noticed that family members listen very closely to the final words spoken by their loved ones. Several times as I entered the room where the dying father or mother was laying, I found family members and friends quietly standing close to the bedside, almost kind of holding their breath, straining their ears to hear so as not to miss any of those final parting words. If you've ever had a parent or a sibling die, then you know what I mean. These last sayings of our loved ones are indeed, they are precious to us. Final words can be very revealing. They tend to to, to, to expose the heart and the mind of the dying person. And those last words often enable us to see their true feelings about life. And then also a person's last words can be filled with a special depth of wisdom. I mean, I mean most people don't engage in idle prattle when they know they're about to breathe their last. And often a dying person offers some great wisdom or insight in their last few breaths. For example, it is said that Alexander the Great, in his final words, said, When I die, thrust my hands through, uh, through my death shroud so that the world may know that my hands are empty. But of all the final words that have been spoken, none are more precious, none are more revealing, none are more filled with more meaning and wisdom than those crucial last words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One writer said it well when he said that in a very real sense, the final words of our dying Lord are are, are windows that enable us to look into eternity and to see the heart of the Savior as well as the heart of the gospel. But in order to fully grasp the meaning of our Lord's final words on earth, we need to remember how he died and also where he died. For you see, Jesus uttered these last words, not from a hospital bed or while he was comfortably ending his days in some peaceful hospice. Nor did Jesus say them as he lay in his own bed at home. No, Jesus, Jesus' last words were spoken as he was hanging on that cross. Jesus uttered these precious and powerful words as he was being crucified by Roman soldiers at the insistence of the religious leaders, the church. He was being crucified He uttered these words as being crucified. He hangs on that cross. The crowds have turned from him and they have turned against him. Judas has betrayed him. Peter has denied him. His closest friends have all left him. And God will yet abandon him. And in that context we hear Jesus pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And so as I said this morning, I begin a series of Lenten sermons and I want to listen with you to the last words of Christ as he hung on that cross on the hill of Golgotha. And this morning, I administer God's word to you using as my theme Christ's appeal, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. We will first of all determine for whom it was that Christ prayed and then we want to consider for what it was that Christ prayed. Father, forgive them. Who did Christ, for whom did Christ pray and what did he pray for them? 
You all are familiar with the story. Even our little children know it and can tell it. Jesus had been arrested. He had been charged, interrogated, whipped, beaten, tried, and finally found guilty. Before the tribunal of Pontius Pilate, his sentence was pronounced. He was condemned to die. His execution was to be the most accursed death, that of the cross. He was taken out of the city gates, out of the city to Golgotha, the place of the skull. He had been nailed to the tree, and as he hangs on that cross, waiting to die between those two other criminals who were to be executed with him, we now listen to his last words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Imagine now for a moment that he would have been an ordinary human being sentenced to die. Imagine someone sentenced to death and as they're being strapped into the gurney before being subjected to that lethal injection, they are given opportunity to utter some final words and even, even then, even those words are of interest. They're often even published in the newspapers. So then what do we hear? Some said nothing. They faced death as they faced life, cold, hard, stoic, almost devoid of any real human emotions. Some in that last moment of life snarled defiantly from the death chamber to their executioners, I will see you in hell. Others reacted very emotionally. Some cried, some still protesting their innocence. Some burst into heartbreaking sobs, having to be literally carried to the place of execution. (coughs) Our human minds understand those reactions from people who are sentenced to die, but how different were the words from Christ when facing his own execution? Listen with me again. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Surely these have got to be the strangest last words ever uttered by a man sentenced to death. In fact, adjectives such as strange or unusual really can't adequately describe the words of Jesus from that cross. These words are unique. Even in all of scripture, we find no other words similar to these of any dying man, with the exception, perhaps, of Stephen, who was the first of the martyrs to follow the Lord in in death. He, too, evidenced somewhat of a similar spirit towards those who killed him. It's interesting, though, perhaps even significant, that on the whole, as we search our Bibles, we discover that for the most part, scripture is silent concerning the death of men. Both Peter and Paul, two of the most significant instruments in the hands of God during the formation of the New Testament church, they passed from the scene without a single word about how or where or when they died. Tradition holds that Peter was crucified in like manner of Christ. Tradition even goes further and says that at the last moment, Peter asked if he could be crucified upside down with his head pointing to the ground because as tradition holds, He considered himself unworthy to die in the same way as had his Lord. However, all of this is simply tradition or even conjecture and cannot be supported by Scripture. The Scripture provides no account of the death of Peter. The same is true of Paul. The last we hear of him, he's imprisoned in Rome. Again, the traditional view holds that he was executed by Rome. May have been, maybe not. Other traditions hold that he was eventually released and continued his journeys to missionary journeys to Spain. However, regardless as to which tradition is true, the Bible is silent on that matter. The book of Acts closes with Paul still imprisoned in Rome. We simply hear no more of him or about him after that imprisonment. And it would be my conviction 
that the silence of the Bible with respect to the death of the saints is significant. I would argue that the Bible that the Bible that the Bible gives us none of this information that it has a purpose. I believe it to be legitimate to suggest that the reason the scripture gives us little or no mention of the deaths of the heroes of the faith of the new or uh, of, of the New Testament <coughs> is to draw our attention away from men and direct all of our attentions and affections to the death of him hanging on the cross who is central to all of the gospel proclamation. The scripture is silent concerning men in order that our our attention may be directed to that one death that is different from all other deaths. And when we now, in that frame of mind, listen to him speak as he hangs dying on that cross, then we are gripped by his words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But who was it now that Jesus prayed for? Well, a superficial reading of this text would teach that Jesus here is asking for forgiveness for those who were immediately responsible for his death. And and it is then further assumed that Jesus is pleading for their forgiveness on the basis of their ignorance. The presupposition then goes something like this. These Romans, these Roman soldiers, these soldiers who whipped him, who scourged him, and finally fastened him to that cross, they did not know who he was. Had they known, had they known he was the very son of God, surely they would not have killed him, would they? No. Their action was committed in ignorance, and therefore it is assumed that Jesus asked the Father to forgive them of their sin because they were not familiar with the true facts. And that is a commonly held interpretation of this text. However, when you examine that interpretation in the light of all of Scripture, then that interpretation presents us with many difficulties. That interpretation becomes problematic in that it simply does not square with other scriptural truths. That Jesus prayed for these men because they were not familiar with the gospel is not a truth given us in the Bible. And ultimately, when examined in the light of the rest of the scriptures, such an interpretation must be rejected since it is obvious in conflict with the other truths clearly given us in the Bible. In the context of all of God's word, it is impossible, it is impossible that Christ prays for forgiveness for these men on the basis of their ignorance. Why? Because the Bible clearly teaches that ignorance can never be a basis for pardon. Ignorance can never be an excuse. Do we not hear Paul himself telling us in crystal clear language that no man shall have an excuse before God? Those who have heard and have rejected and those who have not heard the gospel all stand equally guilty and condemned before God. No man shall have excuse. Capture that concept with me then as we see it demonstrated from the history of Sodom and Gomorrah and as we contrast those cities with the history of Nineveh. When we speak of Sodom and Gomorrah, we're given two facts in biblical history. First of all, they were, an extre- they were extremely godless cities. Were they more godless and more wicked than other cities? Perhaps, perhaps not. We don't know. But we do know they were very wicked cities. Secondly, we know that, that they were destroyed by an obvious intervention by God himself. Scripture is crystal clear that these cities were destroyed by a violent act of God. 
But further, as far as scripture is concerned, we are not told that God ever sent a prophet to call them to repentance and obedience before he destroyed them. We read simply that they sinned and were destroyed in their ignorance. The entire account centers around one man, Lot, who was spared because of the prayers of Abraham. Were the other citizens warned? Were they given opportunity to repent and to be spared as well? Nothing in our Bibles would indicate that. They sinned, they were guilty, they died in their ignorance. Notice now, by way of contrast, God's dealing with Nineveh. This too was an extremely wicked city. But we know that God had determined to spare Nineveh, and he did so. But but, but God did not simply pronounce pardon on them in their ignorance. No, God did not simply overlook their sin or forgive them because they knew not what they were doing. No, God sent the prophet Jonah to teach and to preach. God sent Jonah to call attention to the sin of the citizens of Nineveh. And the prophet warned them of the wrath of God that was sure to come if they persisted in their unbelief. But Nineveh heard the voice of the Lord through the prophet. They heard, they turned, and they were pardoned. They were pardoned because, because, because they were no longer ignorant? No, they were pardoned because of their repentance. Their sin was forgiven, not because of, of while in their ignorance, but because they repented of their sin. People of God, an important biblical principle and concept is set before us here in all of this. The only pardon known and taught by Scripture is a pardon preceded by repentance. When God wills to grant pardon to a sinner, then he does so by first of all bringing the sinner to a knowledge of sin, and then he also graciously brings him to repentance. We see that again very clearly in the account of King David. You know that story as well. You know of the great twofold heinous sin of David, adultery and murder. And you know also that it was the will of God to restore David. But God did not simply pronounce pardon on David. No, God sent the prophet Nathan to accuse David of his sin, to call him to repentance and repent. He did. (coughs) And then God reconcile David to himself and that's precisely what the scriptures teaches us we read in 1 John 1 if we will but confess if we will but confess our sin then God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all iniquity well now if we know that to be a biblical truth then it becomes clear that the prayer of Christ in our text cannot mean father forgive them because they are ignorant It cannot mean that Christ means to have these Roman soldiers forgiven because they do not know of their sin. That kind of forgiveness is completely foreign to Scripture. No one will be saved without, first of all, recognizing and confessing their sin before God. To suggest that Jesus sought forgiveness in that way for these men would do violence to all that Christ and his disciples had taught us about true reconciliation of fallen men and women to God. But the question then becomes, what then does Christ pray for here in our text? People of God, capture this with me. Just as Nathan came to David in order that David would be brought to a sense of guilt before God, 
and then was forgiven, it is now in that same way that we must understand and interpret this prayer of Christ. Jesus prayed that those for whom he prayed would be brought to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus prayed that they would be ignorant of their sin no no longer. Jesus prayed that they would be convicted of their sin and that through the knowledge of their sin they would be brought to repentance for that was the only way they could receive the so necessary forgiveness from God. And this fact becomes even clearer for us when we set the entire crucifixion scene before us. When we look at it, capture this concept with me. We see not one cross, but three. Jesus hung between two criminals, one on his left, one on his right. One of those two received pardon. One did not. What was now the difference between these two? These two men stood equally condemned. Each of them had broken the law of God and the laws of the land. Both were receiving their just reward for their crimes against humanity and against the kingdom. And yet, (coughs) one received pardon from God, the other did not. Why? Because one repented and the other did not. Make no mistake then. The prayer of Jesus did not seek pardon on the basis of misunderstanding or ignorance. Jesus, even as he was dying on the cross, prayed that those for whom he was dying would be brought to a knowledge of the truth, a knowledge that would be followed by repentance, and that through their repentance they might receive pardon from God. My dear people of God, that this can be the only interpretation becomes even more clear when we now go to consider the identity of those for whom Christ prays. Congregation, as I read the many commentaries on my shelf in my library in preparing this sermon, I found many different interpretations attempting to identify precisely who it was that Christ prayed for here in this text. Some theories hold that Christ was praying for the Roman soldiers involved in the crucifixion. The argument is presented that these soldiers were simply following their orders from their superiors and therefore, as some would hold, they can't be held responsible and so Jesus asked that they be forgiven. I've heard the same argument presented concerning the Russian soldiers who slaughter innocent men and women in the Ukraine. Without mercy, the Russian soldiers spilled the blood of innocent people and were told that they're, they're just following orders. They're not responsible for their atrocities. Others posit the claim that Christ here prays for the Jewish leaders who had plotted and planned his death. The argument then goes that the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were all very religious people. They were religious men who honestly believed that they were executing an imposter, a blasphemer. They They were purifying the church, if you will. It suggested that had they realized that he was truly the Son of God, they would have acted differently. Still others suggest that Jesus is praying for pardon for the people of Jerusalem, some of whom had had wept bitter tears as he made his way to Golgotha. And then then finally some posit the universalist claim claim that Christ here prays for forgiveness for for the whole world. So many different interpretations, and yet none of these suggestions can be true. For you see, when we ask the question, for whom was Christ praying We need to find the answer by carefully examining God's plan of redemption as that's given us in all of the scripture. 
And then the Bible gives us the answer. You see, just a few short hours earlier, Jesus also had prayed to his Father. We find that prayer in John 17 in Christ's high priestly prayer. And there we hear him say, Father, Father, I pray not for the world, but I pray for those whom thou hast given me. Jesus did not pray for all men. He prayed only for some men. In that prayer, Jesus divides all of fallen humanity into two groups. And he says that he prays not for the world, but he prays for those chosen by the Father and given to the Son. Would Jesus now be praying for a a different group of people? Would he one moment pray for a certain group and then a few hours later pray for forgiveness for a different group? Would Jesus contradict himself, perish the thought? After all, is he not the immutable, unchanging God, the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever? Humans frequently change their minds, but not God Almighty. If then, if then it was true in Gethsemane, in Gethsemane that he prayed for those who were given him by the Father, then here on the cross... He still prayed for that same group of humans. The prophet Isaiah sheds further light on this matter for us. Follow carefully with me for just a moment. In Isaiah 53, you know the text. Speaking of the coming crucifixion, the Isaiah says, He has poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The text says that Christ made intercession, prayer for the transgressors. The question then becomes, who are the transgressors for whom Christ intercedes? And the answer is given us in the verse itself. We read, he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is a vital point that we may not miss. He bore the sins of many, and he intercedes for those whose sins he bore. They're one and the same group. He prayed for the transgressors whose sins he bore. Who were now those transgressors? Whose sins did Jesus bear? And again, the text, the text leads the way. He bore the sins of many. And in the New Testament, we read, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Follow with me now. The designation many is an indefinite term. It can be a large or a small number, but, but many never means all. People of God, when we now hear the prayer of Christ in the context of God's plan of redemption, and when we then in that context ask the question, for whom was Christ praying? Then the answer must by now be obvious to us. I lay down my life for my sheep. Christ died and prayed not for a nameless mass. Christ dies and prays for his own. He prays for those given him by the Father. Jesus here confirms what in theological language is called particular or limited atonement. He dies and he prays not for the world, not for those who were ignorant. He prays for that limited number, that particular number for whom he expressly came to die. My dear people, God, the prayer of Christ is defined by the limits of the extent of the atonement. Jesus came to die for a definite, a limited number of people. 
Christ came to die for those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. It can be no other way. Forgiveness for some, forgiveness for many, was ordained by the Father. It was obtained by the Son and applied by the Spirit and can only be received through the death of Jesus Christ. Apart from the vicarious atonement, there can be no forgiveness. And now we understand Jesus' prayer. If I may take the liberty to paraphrase it, Christ here prays, Father, Father, as I now lay down my life for my sheep, I pray that they may be brought to repentance and that they may therefore be forgiven. Christ prays for every soul given him by his Father. Oh, people of God, having now understood the significance of this prayer, the prayer now holds precious implications for us. You see, having understood that Christ prays here only for his elect, and knowing that Christ's prayers being perfect are always heard, always answered by the Father, to know then that Christ interceded here not only for Abraham, not only for Isaac or Jacob or Joseph and Moses, not only for the disciples or, or not only for his mother standing there in the shadow of the cross, but he prays also for all of those who are his own, spanning all of the centuries. And that prayer then includes us here in Bowmanville. Astounding, isn't it? Boggles the mind, isn't it? Oh, capture the tremendous implications now. Jesus' prayer or his atonement was not offered in sweeping generalities. No, how impoverished the view of the Arminian who argues that Christ died for anyone who would choose to accept it for themselves. No, Christ did not pray and then die and then simply wait to see who would come to believe it. No, Christ prayed for, Christ died for a specific people. He prays for and he died for those whom the Father called by name. And here in our text of this morning, he prays for every believer individually and the church collectively, for it was the church that was given to Christ by the Father. Capture with me, in the context of all of this, precisely what it was that Christ prayed here in our text. He prays for you, and he prays for me. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they do not yet know that they are sinners. Father, forgive them. Bring them to a knowledge of sin. Father, forgive them. Bring them to repentance. Father, forgive them. Bring them to tears of penitence and bring them to faith in what I'm about to do here on the cross for them. And Father, as the whole world stands equally condemned in Adam, forgive those whom you have given me from before the foundation of the world in order, in order, in order that they may be with me where I am going. Oh, now it becomes a precious prayer for us. When we now see that this prayer was not for a small group of Roman soldiers, when we see that his last words were not for the Jews in Jerusalem, not for the whole world, but that it was for all of the elect, the elect of all ages and all generations, including us as part of the elect here in Bowmanville, then this becomes an intensely 
personal prayer. Father, forgive them. Not because they are ignorant, but forgive them because I now lay down my life for them. Having understood that, then to our great amazement, we see his prayer being immediately answered and fulfilled. We see the results of Christ's prayer. The words are hardly out of his mouth. And listen, Jesus, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me, remember me. Startling words from a, words from a hardened common criminal. Jesus looks at him and says, today you shall be with me in paradise. A few moments later, a Roman soldier looks upon Jesus and cries, surely this was the son of God. You see, another one of the elect had been gathered. <clears throat> the prayer of Christ was fulfilled again on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ unto remission of sin. And 3,000 were added to the church. The prayer of Jesus is still being fulfilled daily as men and women are brought to faith and repentance at the foot of the cross through the preaching of the cross. And they do so because of Christ's prayer on the cross my dear precious people of God tremble in amazement and then fall on your knees at the cross with me as we praise God that he has prayed father forgive them for by faith you and I might know that we are part of them because he prayed because the word and spirit of God are stronger than the powers of evil within our own fallen hearts because God in his wonderful sovereign grace has answered the prayer of Christ on the cross, therefore you and I, therefore you and I might know ourselves now and forever to be hidden in that secret place of safety in the bosom of Jesus Christ. Ah, oh, my dear, precious saints of God gathered with me in Bowmanville this morning, what now will you do with the precious, precious gospel you have heard again this morning? Will you simply think it was an interesting explanation or will you then simply receive it for information and continue on in your life unchanged? In that case, I remind you that this morning you begin a week of preparation in anticipation of participating in the sacrament next Sunday. If the good news you have heard this morning leaves you cold, indifferent, and unaffected, then the grace and the blessing of the table next week is not for you. And you are urged to refrain from participating, lest you eat and drink judgment unto yourself. If, however, your heart is overwhelmed with gratitude to God and to his Christ for what has been done for you to open paradise for you, then take this week and examine your heart to see if there be anything that still needs attention this week. Is there tension between you and your husband or your wife? Is there brokenness between you and one of your children or perhaps a sibling? Is there alienation between you and a brother or a sister in the congregation? 
Ask God to show you what you need to do before attending the table. But above all, search deeply into your heart and find there your love for God and his Christ. Find there assurance and evidence that you are one of those for whom Christ prayed when he hung on that tree. And then with tears of repentance, mingled with tears of gratitude and joy, answer the invitation to sit with him and one another at the table next.